0: Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by RaptorAid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook, Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, I am joined by Brian Everidge of the Scottish Raptor Study Groups. Now when I started these interviews one of the reasons was to bring you people that really are at the forefront of raptor conservation and when it comes to raptor conservation in the UK you really can't go much better than Brian Etheridge. The stuff he's done, the things he's seen, the species he's monitored, they are right up there and this is a fantastic interview that I hope you'll enjoy. Right, okay, as far as I'm aware, we are live, so welcome to everyone or anyone who's tuned in, another Facebook Live Q&A. Tonight, we're really, really lucky to have Brian Etheridge with us, from, joining us from the, all the way up in Scotland, uh, and we're gonna talk about Brian's life, monitoring raptors, because, yeah, what, what he doesn't know about monitoring raptors, well, it's it's not worth listening to. That's, my, that's what I say. Anyway, thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Right. Yes,
1: great pleasure to be here, Jimmy. You, you look a lot uh,
0: wilder than the last time I saw you two years ago. Yeah, well, it's probably because I haven't shaved since last time you saw me. All right. You probably have a few wrens nesting in that, I imagine. I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty. I think the word my wife uses is feral. I, I <laughs> yeah, I'm feral, indeed. Feral at the moment. So uh, anyway, it's the 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 premise behind this, Brian, is um, is just to give people an opportunity to meet people like yourself. Uh, Ruth obviously Dr. Ruth Tingy we had on yesterday who, you know, do so much for raptors in the, in the UK. And we've had people from all over the world. So yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a window into your world really and, and monitoring raptors. Um, I won't let, I'll let you into the nickname that I, I've got for you at the end of it. I don't, I won't tell it you now, um, but right, I, okay. <laughs> there's, certain, there's certain people that I meet in life that I work with, with raptors um, and I, I give them, the special ones get a nickname. So I'll, I'll tell you, if you oh, remind right. me at the end, I'll tell you what yours is, but I won't do it now because you might laugh at me. Um, so anyway, let's start with always the same is at the beginning. How did you, wh- what's, the, what's, what's your first memory of Birds of Prey and, and watching Birds of Prey and thinking, yeah, this is for me. Right, so
1: really my birding life started, really came from my father. Um, And really, the first memory was when I was about 10 or 11. Uh, But my first experience of a raptor was a a sparrowhawk, which I found nailed to a a hut in a wood on a heap of ground, you know, in Northumberland. So that was my first raptor, uh, which uh, I uh, sort of removed and cut its wing off and got its skull. And, you know, so that was really the start. And I grew up in the Thumberland, which was at the time there was quite a hotbed of young, you know, teenage birders, you know. And at that time in the early '60s, raptors were very scarce, and so they were they had a special attraction, you know. Um, and but in Thumberland, really, all we had really were merlins and kestrels. There were no sparrows were very extremely rare. There were no peregrines; they'd gone but there were no buzzards, nothing else, you know. And so, of course, for, kestrels were everywhere, but uh, merlins we had to go up on the moors. And so that was really my first live experience was looking at merlins uh, with a group of pals who used to cycle out from Newcastle where I was brought up and go out, mainly on the Simon side hills near Rothbury. That's where we used to go and look at merlins. Um, okay. That was in sort of cycling distance, you know, about a couple of hours on our bicycles. And really, um, it it wasn't until I sort of uh, late in, late in my teens, I joined the RAF, uh, got an engineering post in the RAF when I was nineteen, and um, I was posted then. My first posting was to the north of Scotland, really, only thirty miles from where I'm sitting now. Yeah, and this was my first visit to Scotland. And then I started seeing birds of prey, um, you know, buzzards and uh, kestrels and sparrow hawks, you know. Um, and uh, I was eventually posted away. I did a few years up in the north of Scotland, but I had a really great posting away to Gibraltar,
0: okay. So yeah. if,
1: and that really got me going because Gibraltar at that time in the early 70s was just amazing for the passage of raptors, you know, birds of prey. Um, all sorts you know in in, not in single figures in 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 the hundreds if not thousands you know so uh, I did I was out in Gibraltar for three years came back in the mid 70s you know and and my one of my best mates from my teenage years one of my Northumbrian birding class chap called Mick Marquis and uh, he was working with Ian Newton studying sparrowhawks at the time yep. in uh, down in Dumfriesshire. So Mick came up and joined me for a long weekend, you know, where I was based, um, really just in Murrayshire, across near, near Forest. And um, he said it's a great place for raptors. You've got all this, you know, Scots pine. And so he took me out and got me started on looking for sparrowhawk nests, you know, and so with his encouragement, it really sort of off I went, you know. And so that became an absolute obsession. For, for I was still working in the RAF as an engineer, but uh, in all my free time I spent looking for sparrowhawks. But when you're searching woodlands, you find not only sparrowhawks, but you find other species, you know, you find buzzards. Um, and so I've got a sort of small population of buzzards to monitor as well. Yeah. And then I started going back on the moors again to look for, for, for um, um, merlins, and of course, and then I came across hen harriers. And, you know, my first hen harrier nest was a, a brood of young exploding out of the nest as I walked in on it, you know, uh, well-feathered chicks, you know. Yep. So <clears throat> that's really how it really kicked off. And so eventually I... Um, Sparrowhawk study ran for 13 years and I fed all my information to Ian Newton and he incorporated quite a lot of it in his book The Sparrowhawk
0: yeah
1: um, <clears throat> and the, the the buzzard study uh, um, a colleague up here friend up here in, in the birding world was Bob Swan he was looking at buzzards over at Drumna Drocket down what nest side and of course I was looking at a different population in farmland and and forestry just around on the Murray Plain, you know. So we looked at our data and we looked at prey species and so Bob put put together a paper looking at how the prey varied between these two places. One where rabbits were very important, which was the Murray study and Bob's, he had no rabbits and so his buzzers were just feeding off mainly passerines and so he his buses were producing sort of one or two young and mine were producing three or four, you know. Yeah, yeah. he wasn't suffering persecution, but I was suffering quite severe persecution, despite, um, you know, all the monitoring I was doing. Um, the ones I in, in state forests were OK, but the ones in private forestry were just getting hammered, you know. Um, and eventually my life in the RAF came to an end. Um, in in the mid 80s. And I'd be, I mean, I was just obsessed with Birds of Prey. And, and during that time, I got to know Roy Dennis very well, who was at the time the Highland officer for the RSPB. And he just said, When you leave the RAF, just come and have a word with me and see if we can find you a job. You know, you might, you know, you never know, we might have something for you. And it's just. Some- no job interview at all you know so i just said yeah. roy um i'm coming out in you know a month's time or six weeks time or something like that you know and by now in that, by now i was i was 40 years old you know and i i didn't want to go into the normal process then when you leave the forces you, you you follow the trade or the job that you're in so the normal process for aircraft engineers like myself would be to go and go to an airport, you know, and work at an airport working on civilian aircraft. I just didn't want that. No, I, hadn't, yeah. no, I don't know. I wanted to be working on birds, you know, and the idea of being paid to do that. And luckily for me, um, Roy said, yeah, we get there, there. There's a job coming up. Um, it's looking up doing more than survey work uh, for and and so he said uh, yeah, it'd be just ideal for you. So I, um and the and the guy who gave me that first interview for that job was a chap called Mark Avery. <laughs> <laughs> really? Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yes, I, uh, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. It's so, so um it it, it was just uh, there was me and a and one other chap walking these transect along forest um so that, but they want to look at the impact of forestry on on bird species you know so yeah. particularly the effect of edge because they the theory being that along the forest edge there were predators like hoodie crows and foxes and they're having an impact out out onto the moorland you know affecting wader species and other things you know so our di- idea we had to walk these transects at 500-metre distance. Each had to be four kilometres long. And we had to do four a day. Wow. And we had to, you couldn't do the next adjacent one. So you had to sort of walk your four kilometres. Then you had to walk another kilometre to join an but one transect and go along that. And then, you know, so we ended up doing something like 20 kilometres a day for five days a week. I've never been so fit. You know, I think the first uh, the first day it took me about eight hours to do my, you know, my four tr- transects. You know, but by the end of the summer I could do it in about four and a half hours. You know, um, anyhow, that was very useful. I only did one season, and um, I, I really was. It was a short contract, so uh, uh, I came out of that. I was. And, but they said Look, just hang around a bit. There may be another contract coming up. And sure enough, within a couple of months, they were they were looking for somebody to um, organise a hen harrier survey, the very first one. So this was uh, beginning of '88. Okay. Um, so I went for the interview with that along with quite a few other people. But um, amazingly, I got the job. I think it was because I was the only one there who'd ever been to a hen harrier nest, um, <laughs> um, which was. Uh, my experience of hen harriers was, was relatively limited to the ones I saw on migration in Gibraltar, and maybe it was about half a dozen nests I'd I'd found when I was doing my sparrowhawk study, you know, back in Mauritius. Yeah. And um, anyhow, I got the job, and that that was me hooked. I mean, I mean, I was fairly well hooked on raptors. Well, I was, I was obsessed with the darn things. If you ask my wife, she says, you're just obsessed with birds. Anyhow, um, mm-hmm.
0: yeah.
1: but now I was absolutely obsessed with this beautiful raptor, you know, the hen area. Um, and I still am obsessed with it, you know.
0: Well, I was going to ask just quickly, what year, were, roughly, what year was that then? Because obviously you said you still That was 88. That was, oh, I,
1: I can remember yeah, eighty eight. <laughs>
0: So yeah, the the first amazing. survey
1: lasted two years. It was eighty eight and eighty nine. Um, really? That was organised by the RSPB. So I I was made the sort of leader of a team of people who were doing it. So so there were full paid jobs, well contract workers doing yeah. three or four months, uh, scattered all over Scotland, and they. Concentrated purely in Scotland um, because they, well, the population they thought in England so small that we can just get lo- you know local guys to do it, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, um, but the other th- people we use were the raptor study groups we were just emerging at that time. So I think there was about four regional raptor study groups in Scotland in the late 80s. So I thought. Yeah you know, we should use the expertise of these guys, you know? Um, yeah. so, um, so the 80 1988 and 1989 was the, um, with the survey years, um, and that was eventually written up. But one of the factors to come out of that was the, 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 the poor breeding success of hen harrows that were nesting on grouse moors, but Let me say now that at that time, about 40 percent of the population we found were breeding on driven grouse moors. So that's way back, you know, that was, you know, in in the late 80s. Yeah, that's quite a large number. Um, But I mean, they they were suffering quite a high level of persecution and that Mm. really triggered the RSPB to say, well, we need to look at that a bit more because they were concerned about, I think we found about 500 odd pairs in Scotland, but they wanted to look at the impact of this persecution, you know, in a bit more detail. Um, And so actually I just went from the two survey years into a new study um, looking, working with raptor study groups um, and um, looking specifically at persecution, you know, of Henaris. Um, and that was just brilliant for me because I got to know lots of really um, important people in the raptor study groups. I'd go to their meetings. I would find out their Harris specialists. I would, you know, spend weekends with them in the field, really pick their brains, get to know everything about them. You know, understand. Yeah. You know, some of these gay guys. Some of them we unfortunately we've now lost, but just brilliant, inspirational guys, working class guys, no degrees amongst them, just, you know, passionate about being out on the hill, passionate about the birds, you know. That persecution study lasted six years. So (laughs) together with, um, you know, the two years organizing the survey, I had eight years looking at purely hen harriers, you know. And yeah. I, I look back on that as just some of the best years of my life, just wonderful. I was just out every day, out on the moors, you know, working with guys who who shared a similar passion, you know. the That was written up, um, I think, about 1997. Uh, my, my supervisors at the time were... Um, um, oh, it was Reese Green, who's at uh, Professor Reese Green now, um, and um, Ron Summers, Dr. Ron Summers. Um, so they supervised me. I, it, I, I mean, I—I I should say right at the very start, I have no professional qualifications at all in yeah. biology or zoology. I'm, I'm an aircraft engineer. You know, I, I tweak engines, jet engines, and. That's what I'm qualified to do. <laughs> I, I I, had no further education after 16. So yeah. um, so, th- I need that um, scientific support, you know, and I still need it, you know, the, the, to support yeah. what I do. I have the keenness and the field craft to go out there and to collect this information, but I need people in the background to do this statistics, you know, and advise me the way it's going. So, um, so that was, again, that was written up and published and it showed really the huge impact that driven grouse moors, but still in the late at that time, by 96, it it was still a large proportion of the nest. You know, there was about 40 percent of the nests were on grouse moors, 40 percent were on unmanaged heather moorland. And about 20 percent of nests we, we looked at were in young forestry. Okay, yeah. Main, mainly over in the West, you know, uh, in Argyll. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so again, there was this stark difference between. Harriers that attempt to nest, but also at the time, I should have mentioned at the very beginning, we introduced wing tagging. So in night and, and again, I, I've got to go back to the um, raptor study groups down in um, Strathclyde and um, South Strathclyde and Dumfries and Galloway who had started wing tagging in the late 80s and I really piggybacked on theirs and brought in a a greater range of colours and encouraged other people to do it and so that we um, we're we're tagging quite large numbers we tagged something like 1200 young hen harriers over the you know five or six years and it was looking for these returning birds and they're looking at their survival which was so crucial you know yeah to understanding what was
0: happening um so yeah what can you can you remember what sort of thing back then what's roughly what sort of not it doesn't have to be specific exact what sort of figures were you getting back from? from it with the wing tags? Well, I, I we had almost
1: as many sightings of these birds as we marked. Yes, some were multiple okay. sightings. So it looked like first year survival was pretty good, if I remember. It, it, it is when they attempt to breed and, and, and most of the persecution was happening in in the breeding season, you know, the females were just shot off the nest.
0: Yeah, and,
1: um, you know, know, quite high numbers, but there were still quite high numbers attempting to breed. And I wish I had the paper in front of me because I I frequently have to go back it because there were so many (laughs) facts and figures come out. it was it was the survival of these wingtag birds on grouse moors which is the critical thing so there was wingtag birds breeding on unmanaged moorland and there was wingtag birds breeding on grouse moors so the critical thing was looking at what happens so i mean there was natural failure so you get natural failure on unmanaged moorland and you get natural failure presumably on grouse moors but when there was a failure we, and, and it was always very difficult to determine you know you go to the nest and the, and and the and the contents are missing yeah and so you 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 don't know what what the cause is unless there's any other evidence and it's very rarely you find the evidence i remember once finding you know a shotgun cartridge nearby obviously oh, okay. you know you would shot it and he hadn't picked up the spent cartridge but that, that was rare, so ma- mainly it was. Um, there was no evidence, but when you looked at the return rate, so these f- females that lot that, that failed, for, yeah, when you looked at what their survival was to the following year, and the thing with Henhow is that mostly they returned to the place or roughly to the same area where they bred the previous year, so the ones that failed on unmanaged moorland, 70% of them were seen again the next year and, and, and bred again.
0: Yeah.
1: But on grouse gross moors it was something like less than 10%, you know. Yeah. So basically these nest failures were associated with the loss of the females, so basically the females getting shot and the contents were being removed. Yeah. So that was the striking thing, the big difference, and that was quite important. That's one of the things that, you know, the wing tags told us uh, uh, how valuable they were. They also, of course, gave us lots of other information. Um, you know where they go in winter, the migrations. You know um, th- this big shift of young females from the west of Scotland, where they're fairly productive. You know, and they just move east onto the Grouse Moors in Eastern Scotland. And the movement of you know young males down through Britain, down, down through the Pennines and, and a lot of them going into the continent. You know, that's yeah. quite a striking difference. Males, young males fly south, young females fly east. Um, but at that time, so the study finished in, in 96, early 96. Um, and we had enough evidence then to, uh, to, for the paper to go go forward, you know. Yeah. Um, and at the time I thought, oh, this is a game changer. This will change everything. But what I hadn't reckoned for at the same time, they'd started up this first Langem study, where, w- okay. which, is, which is where they were looking at the impact of predatory birds on on a grouse mower, you know. So, yeah. um, and, and, and that was published within a year of our paper on persecution. And that showed, if depending on what, whose hat you're wearing, you can either say the, 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 the either damaging effect of having lots of hen harriers, or the natural process that happens on a, on a moor when you have large numbers of grouse you know, running about. Yeah. And of course, the keepers immediately latched onto this on, on looked at the negative side of having birds of prey and that was a game changer because they don't read you know bird study or you know journal oh, scientific okay. study any they yeah. don't read that stuff and and yeah. and stuff that highlight the persecution and stuff like that that stays in scientific journals it doesn't get pulled out and 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 it doesn't enter shooting dimes or anything like that. But what yeah. does is when an equal, another scientific study, looks at predation effects, that gets, well, the juicy bits get pulled out that they want to see. Mm-hmm. And, and this was, you know, 15 pairs of hen harriers what happens when, you know, you, and they stop the grouse numbers coming back and basically cane thrown onto the scrap heap, made redundant, you know. Yeah. all this sort of stuff and that was the that was the big change and suddenly we saw and I think RSPB took their eye off the door you know they did the study they published this stuff and they thought this this would be a big change you know and it really wasn't because the people you've got to change is the man on the gown with the gun you know the keeper on the ground he's the one who's got to change you can say what you've done well like but he's he's there he's got his finger on the pulse and if you see something he about hen harriers impacting grouse he does not want any any hen harriers he doesn't want one pair he doesn't want even he doesn't want to see one bird you know yeah. so then it changed now they were killing hen harriers they found they could kill them all the year round you have just got to find out where they're roosting you know you can take them out that way You can go in and lump them, you know. And then, of course, this. Idea about getting high numbers of grouse, this. Which was developed down in England, spread to Scotland, you know, and suddenly by the end of the 90s, we had this high intensive grouse moors, you know,
0: Yeah.
1: greater mobility for keepers. They've all got quad bikes, you know, more hill tracks, you know, and, and, and absolutely zero tolerance to birds of prey, particularly hen harriers. They hated hen harriers with a vengeance, you know. They just, you know, they, they called them rats with wings, you know. Yeah. No appreciation of the natural world. All they saw was, i got to get my gross numbers back, you know. Get my big, yeah. uh, have a successful shooting day and get a nice big fat tax-free tip, you know. That's, I'm afraid that's the way they saw it. And that has not changed. So we've had now had over twenty years of this high-intensity grouse moor with zero tolerance. And what has happened is that, whereas back in the early nineties, forty percent of the Scottish grou- um, hen population was breeding on grouse moors, now it is probably one percent. If that, I haven't done the maths, but you know, I, I, I. One or two nests a year, probably. It's probably less than that, it's probably 0.2%. And of course, the situation in England is just it, well, it's gone from maybe it's about 15 or 20 pairs to a couple, you know?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and we've been, yes, so nothing's really changed. So, anyhow, that's the Hen harry story. But of course, <laughs> at the end of the, with 96, it was um, that they said, well, thanks very much, Brian. Um, so I was working for, uh, for, um, uh, for, forget what they call now. We, we used to call it research department at the NARS PV. So I was working for them and um, th- there was no job for me because I, I, I um, because there was no more work to work, but yeah, they yeah. did suggest if you want more work, in RSP, but you should look and see what there is in the regional budget, you know? So I was working from the office in Inverness at the time. So I, um, amazingly a job came up. They were wanting um, somebody to coordinate a red kite work. And I thought yeah. it's bird of prey, breeds in woodland, used to woodland, you know? Um, yeah. So my, I, again, I'd. <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but I didn't get an interview. I just said, "Oh, yeah, I'm available. I'll do the job," and so I just w- walked straight into it, you know, not knowing then that that was going to be me for the next twenty years as a red kite officer. Yeah. You know? um, but um, it's yeah. So I I should say I was a red kite officer, but I was only red kite officer for about 6 months of the year so for the other 6 months they always filled me in with other work you know so
0: yeah.
1: it was the sort of desk work so in the first of april i'd be out of the office like a shot and they wouldn't see me until early august They'd just i just yeah. come back you know tanned and hairy and uh, early august you know
0: yeah. um,
1: and then i'd just sort of sit in front of the Computer and that was me until the following spring, you know. But there was always lots to do. So Ron Summers was very good. He gave me bits of work to do. I remember one job I looked at was looking at... um, uh, What was it? Oh, it was was Nightjar Pellets and Poo. Oh, wow. Dissecting it and looking for different... Or was it Nightjar? Might have been something. I'd been mean, something else. I can't remember, but I was had a crash course in identifying bits and pieces. You know, that was <laughs> the, one of the least exciting bits. You know, yeah. um, but so it, it takes us up to about two thousand and three, and in 2000, well, two thousand and two. So things were changing fairly quickly in Scotland, and one of the findings they they had this this. Um, government funded review on raptors and stuff. And one of the findings was that raptor monitoring was being carried out by a number of organizations in Scotland, but it was poorly coordinated. And a lot of the information was getting lost and so they wanted to sort of standardize. And so the job was given to SNH to organize that. So again, this was my first interview. I went they were wanting a raptor monitoring officer. So that's one job I went, I went for and luckily I got. Um, but of course, I know, but I was, still re, I was still a red kite officer. So I, I, I managed to negotiate a very good deal.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, I managed to persuade the red kite people that they would pay me for four months of the year as a red kite officer. And the raptor monitoring would pay me for Um, remaining sort of eight months of the year as the Raptor Monitoring Officer, which I would only do between sort of August and March, you know. And I said, well, on the 1st of April, I'm the Red Kite Officer and I'm not doing any Raptor Monitoring stuff, you know. Yeah. So that was really good and it was very acceptable um, for most, well, I think for everyone. So yeah. it meant I was available. I went around and met all the re-met a lot of the guys I knew from the Henario work that yeah, I'd yeah, done yeah. you know, 10 years, 20 years before. And um, yeah, so that was brilliant. And that was a really good spell as well. Um, but um, so I did 10 years as the RMO. But I could see things were changing. Um, it was, by the way, the RMO post that was hosted initially by SNH and then it was hosted by RSPB yeah. and then it was hosted by BTO Scotland, you know, or well, finally it was hosted by BTO Scotland. So, um, and I could, I could feel things were changing and they wanted, and I felt I would, I'd given it 10 years, I'd brought a few changes in, but again, I felt it somehow as my lack of scientific knowledge, you know, my, scientific just like a formal scientific. education I had, I should say, was holding me back. I couldn't do the analysis I wanted to do. And I felt somehow that, and I shouldn't say this, I've got re- great respect for the BTO. They wouldn't let me say in my annual report what I wanted to say. okay? Because they would say, Brian, Brian, we're not a campaigning organization. We just present the results. We don't campaign. And yeah. Of course, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say things that they didn't want me to say, but that, that's not the only thing. I just felt it's time yeah. to retire from that. And by now, I was sort of in my mid-sixties, you know. So in twenty, so I did ten years, twenty thirteen. I I then stood down from the RMO job, and it passed um, to to Amy now, the current person. Yeah. But I stayed on as the red kite officer um, in a part-time role again just walk, working full-time for the month, for, you know the summer months looking for nests monitoring nests liaising with landowners um, and, and effectively what I should have done was eight months a year was just laze around and retire you know which was seems to be reasonable but of course, I was still the red kite officer, so I was still out there, still looking at red kite. You don't switch off. I mean, yeah. raptors are a passion. You, it, 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 it's never was an eight to five job. It's, it, it it's you're always the, you know, um, yeah. the red kite officer. So you get phone calls, you know, all hours of the day and night, and or oh, there's a dead kite on the road, or the sun, you know, and off you'd go, you know. Most of the time, luckily, it were, f- were caught pheasants, you know, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> People drive past and see something bright red in the gutter and think, oh, it's a red kite. Um, so, yeah. So eventually I decided it's just got to stop, you know, um, and I decided I would. The, 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 the red kite was a funny job because it was being funded by um, SNH, the contract through to RSPB, and they always said, We'd fund it until we got to fifty pairs. Well, of course, they they reached fifty pairs. It took a long time to get there because they were just getting hammered. I mean, they were getting poisoned, and of course, they were they couldn't spread south. If you imagine this reintroduction happened on the Black Isle, and then when you look yeah. south of the Black Isle, you've got about sixty or seventy miles of grouse moor all the way down to Perth. Or more than that, hundred miles of, of, of keeper grousemore estate. And they could not penetrate that. It was like a, it was like the Berlin Wall, you know, you couldn't get past yeah. it, you know. They couldn't get it past it. They were spreading north, they were heading up, and they were spreading west as well, but they they couldn't get past this, and they and they were just getting taken out. Um and I just so um so I did a couple of sort of internal papers which looked at that specifically, and I said, if you decide to quit funding at the moment. And of course, I had introduced wing tagging to or continued the wing tagging on red kites, that was important because the wing tagging again showed us when they entered the breeding populations, they showed us what percentage. And because each bird had a, um, a year code, so a, a, a colour on one wing would tell us what year it was from, with an individual the, uh, alphanumeric number on it. They yeah. would; it could tell us the individual. It could tell us how old the bird was. It could tell us, so we knew how many birds were being wing tagged a year. We knew roughly how many young were being produced, and from that we could predict how many should be breeding at, say, two years old, and how many there were. So we're looking at the loss rate, you know, and we're also monitoring their communal roosts, um, where, you know, and, and reading tags there. So we're looking, we so first year survival was very good. Like it, it was phenomenal. It was something like near, you know, 95%. Yep. They were getting through that their first winter, no problem whatsoever. But in their first summer, when they're one year old, the breeding behavior of the adults forced them out you know you know we don't mind you here during the winter but now I'm breeding in this wooden you can hop it and of course these dis- dis- disperse into areas where there are no red kites and there is no red kites in these areas for an obvious reason yeah and then this is where they're getting hammered so the, the the loss rate between winter 1 and winter 2 was was very high they were just getting hammered in their first summer um, and so there was something less than five percent entering the breeding population and that barely kept up with adult mortality yeah, yeah. You know? and this is why the population was static so i said made the case to snh that you can't stop funding this because this is the only handle you've got on what's happening currently you know on keep it estates this is the only handle no other wing tagging large scale because we were trying to wing wingtack the whole of the productivity every year, all the youngest, you know, this is the only handle. And so it, 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 it ran on, it ran on until, um, it, it should have finished way back in about 2000, but it ran on until about 2016. Yeah. And then, and then I think the funding finally ran out. I think SNH were getting the squeeze and they were had to look at all their budgets and, and 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 you know, uh, I and I had reached seventy, and so I just had said, well, it must be time for me to go now. So I, that, that's it. So I. So that's it. Twenty sixteen, I finally retired full time. So here I
0: am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know for a fact, the retirement. You're not retired. That is no such thing as retirement. Are you, no, 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 not at all, no. So, um, I, 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 thankfully, I'm, I,
1: um, so I'm, I'm now back, really, back being obsessed by Hen Harris. Yeah. So, I, I've, I've picked up a little bit of contract work, both from the RSPB Life Project, which yeah. ran, a, ran up until last year, which was a five-year study, yeah. which involved fitting satellite transmitters. And, um, and I picked up a bit of work. From the heads up for Harrier as one of their field officers. And this is a rather bit of controversial. And I know if, if Ruth is out there listening to this, she'd be going, Oh, groan, Brian. I like you, Brian, but I don't like you doing this. Um, so it's rather controversial, is that um this is the SH or the Scottish government trying to work with the states, particularly driven grouse moors. To allow us to put cameras on Grouse on, on Hinharion S to see w- w- what the impact is, you know, what survival is. Um, and they sign up for this, you know. And so I've been doing that for the last five years. It's only, you know, for half a dozen days a year or so, you know, but it, it involves putting out trail cameras, trying to work with landowners. So it's it's been successful on estates which are not driven grouse moors. But although there's quite a lot of driven grouse moors signed up to it, we're not getting any noticeable impact at the moment.
0: Right, yeah.
1: Um, and the way I see it, I mean, at the moment, the pressure on driven grouse moors is building and building and building almost by the by the day. You know, yes. they, they have, and to me, this is, they're in the last chance saloon now, you know. They've got to, they they, if they think they can carry on the way they have been carrying on for the last, particularly the way they have since the late 90s, this really zero tolerance, intense no. persecution, you know, it's got to stop. And, and it's no use blaming what they, you know, us, animal rights people, <laughs> whatever word, yeah. they brought it on themselves, you know, they don't realise there's something like, you know, over 300 raptor workers out there and they know what's going, they've known what's been going on for a long, long time, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: you know, what we don't, we know, we may not know the true scale of it, but we've got a darn good inkling how, you know, the scale of it, and, you know, it, it has to change because, you know, I've I've lived with this from that very first sparrowhawk, which I found nailed to the gamekeeper's hut. Yeah, um, I can name the estate in case there's any Northumbrian people. It was Blagden Estate, just up the A nine from Newcastle, and it was in a remote bit of woodland. Um, and this, 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 you know, at the time sparrowhawks were, you know, really scarce in the early and this. Just one would be nailed to the side of your shed, along with a load of magpies and crows, of course. Yeah. So that's so the, the, those days have gone, and 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 now the days of killing every bird of prey that comes on your own grouse more has, has got to stop because um, yeah. But at the moment,
0: no no sign. But do you, think what, the precious, do you what, it, someone who's who's spent so much time. Out on um, the uh, out on the hill. So you spent so many hours, days, years out on the hill. What what do you think is going to be is is the best step? Because you've got you've almost got two argue, two calls for regulation or or an outright ban on on yeah grouse shooting or you know to take it further some people say shooting but if we said grouse shooting what, what what's your opinion oh good that put me on the spot sorry <sighs> do you okay yeah, here's, do, do, uh, do, you, do you think <laughs> regulation would work do, do you think, would regulation work do you, in your uh, opinion uh, 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 i i don't know i don't, it
1: it might if they had infrastructure in there to monitor it but you know this is why we have this problem because and let's call it an industry grow shooting is an industry it's not a sport it's an industry that is completely unregulated you know and self-regulation has not worked you know um and you know they're churning out these young keepers from these Rural colleges, you know, done their gamekeeping course, and and it's like sending them to Borstal. They <laughs> they come out worse than what they went in. They learn out all the worst practices, yeah. and it really needs.
0: Yeah,
1: I am I'm, I'm always amazed because you you would have thought in any other um, profession or, or or vocation that though where there's a lot of Illegal activity, there'll be some people who want to play it straight and would stand up and say, I've had enough of this.
0: Yeah.
1: And, 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 but there there hasn't been. And this is the remarkable thing that there's a lot of them out there moaning and saying and putting out their propaganda. And they've got a a very good propaganda machine, you know, Um, and they've got massive funding, you know, from the landowners. But we, most of it's based just on lies, um, so I just don't think. I just don't think there's any chance, really, because they're just, or if there is, I, I think they'll blow it. If we gave them that chance, you know, bring in some regulations, licensing, they'll just blow it.
0: Yeah.
1: Because, um, yeah, the the, the the pressure on them, yeah, I, I can call it pressure if I wish. The expectation on these big days where they want to shoot lots of birds, that's, that's what it is. And that's coming from the sporting agents, you know, who are selling the shooting or from yeah. the owner itself, you know, who wants to impress his pals, you know. They all look back 100 years when they would go and shoot 500 brace, you know. These obscene figures that you look at, you know. And that, yeah. that, those days will never come back. They will yeah. never come back. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, in, I'm inclined. I'm, I mean, I used to say when I was doing the Hen Harrier study, is that I used to I was very strongly against grouse shooting. Then I used to say, this is this is the, the government's either got to say right. This industry, grouse shooting industry, is important for the economy. Therefore, we're going to allow them to kill birds of prey. Now, if they said that, there's something you could do about it. And so, you know, you're basically like saying, right, we don't mind you speeding on motorways. You can, there's no speed limit yeah. on the motorway. You can go as fast as you like.
0: Yeah.
1: That way, you don't have any problem about catching people speeding on motorways.
0: Yeah.
1: This way, you don't have any problem with persecution, people killing because they're allowed to kill what they like and do what they like. But at the moment and we've got a law that protects these birds they are particularly yeah. vulnerable so we we're seeing what's happened down in England what's happening ev- probably even now as we talk here in Scotland you know yeah. and it it annoys me to hell that we've got laws that are just being flouted you know yeah. i just
0: it just well yeah i think the the thing is as well uh, that a lot of people maybe tuning into this have got to get understand as well is is and is because you're on the front line. You 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 see it firsthand, don't you? you yeah. You know, you're out there in the moor. You're monitoring. You're monitoring air, for instance, and then yeah, so, something happens. You know, persecution and and that's it. But you know, it's happening, and it's just another nest. It's another thing that's occurred when it shouldn't be. It should be, you know. It, people should be brought to to justice over it. So. Yeah, um and so yeah.
1: So regarding gross words I mean I would it it it, it I, I can't see the government ever banning it. They would bring in regulation, they would make all these steps, you know, before they ever bring in, you know they would bring in licensing and then they would bring in restrictions and then they would be wanting to you know bag quotas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, like a lot of things that are leftovers from the Victorian era, it's often very difficult to get rid of them, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, if I was to say to you and many people have said this, will probably say this, if I came to you now, we didn't have grouse and say, hey, I've got a great idea. See that little bit of moorland up there? I'm going to burn it, get the grouse numbers back. And then I'm going to have lots of people st- stood in holes in the ground. And then I've got lots of other people chasing them in the air. So put these other people in the holes in the ground can shoot them. How's that for an industry? And you wouldn't get planning permission for it at all. They would just tell you to F off, yeah. you know, because it's just they would just say, oh, well, what about this? What about that? But at the moment, all of us have grown up with this yeah. almost romance about grouse shooting you know the glorious 12th yeah.
0: you know I grew up with that I just accepted it as that the norm that's what happens you know and yeah well I I can I can absolutely I can agree with you wholeheartedly there I've got friends even in the lowlands obviously where I am in, and and uh that go shooting and and they've got they go to big estate shooting. And I remember only last year being in the pub with a few of my friends for nothing to do with shooting and, and but they'd been on a shoot somewhere and they'd shot over 200 ducks in one drive. And yeah. I sat there at the table and I said to my friend, I won't name him, and I said, do you think that's like ethical? Do you th-? And he was like, no, to be honest with you, I stopped shooting because there was just too many ducks. You know, it just got a bit silly. And I was like, what... What goes,
1: what goes through your head then? Yeah, I know, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think that's the same feeling. I was once present when they were doing some duck shooting there and they had this, it was a a moorland pond, you know, where they'd be putting out loads of ducks. So they had all these tame ducks and and they used to go up every day and put out all the grain for them and all used to swim in a big flock and eat the grain. And of course, they, they're, they're so hefted onto this pool, they don't never want to leave it. Yeah, they, then one day exactly. they, they come along and they make a racket, force them into the eye and they fly around in a big circle exactly. over the pool and the guns just shoot away at them. And after the keeper figures they've shot enough, he blows a whistle and they all stop and the ducks land back on the pond again. Well, what remains of them, you know? And yeah, that I is mean.
0: sport. I thought yeah, this right, is stupid. I mean, I, 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 I'm exactly the same with, you know, I've heard it with pheasant shoots, I remember listening to a gamekeeper explain to a bunch of a football, a big, big football club executives, never shot before in their lives and this was a day out for them, which I thought was ludicrous yeah. and I happened to be present in the venue where they were talking about it um, and, uh, and yeah, he was explaining how they, tr- basically they imprint the pheasants to walk up to the hill, top of the hill for food and then yep. they do that while they're poults and youngsters, and then eventually, without the pheasants knowing. Sorry, I don't mean to have them. For, for, as if they, 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 stick a load of guns in between them. So then they scare the pheasants off, and people shoot them. And you think, how, how does anyone, anyone think this is this is normal I know. in our world? You know, and hunts. anyway. We've got, I, I can't neglect because obviously I keep an eye on time. We've got some questions that come in. A few people have all said right. hello, uh, and Andrea Goddard said hello, and Mike Price, and uh, all yeah, right. a few, few others. So, and Hi guys, and I'll ask Andrews in a minute what's um, someone's asked, Ian's asked, um, what's your, quickly just a quick answer what's your opinion on red kite feeding stations with all the work you've done on red kites? Are they still? worthwhile or are they more of a tourist attraction rather than a benefit to kites? Um
1: be? well certainly in the beginning
0: they were very important because
1: it's um I I uh, um and I visit quite a few um and I thought it I, I once I remember took uh, uh, on my way on on my summer holidays down, down to Devon where my folk come from you know we stopped off at Gigren, if you can imagine going via Gigrin to get to Devon for to, to see it there. And I was just blown away. I'd just never seen such a spectacle in all my life. And I, I just saw that, you know, all those people. I thought, this is just brilliant. Um, You know, there was over 200 people there. This amazing experience of seeing large numbers of raptors. And yeah, I, I suppose at the very beginning it got red kites into the people's heads, you know, and, you know, and then when they saw their own one flying over their own house, they were excited, you know, and and, and I still get I, I still get great pleasure seeing red kites about on the Black Isle, see them over my house, even when I go out in the moors, you see them yeah. over the moors. um, And, yeah, I, I still think there's a positive side. So there's the public relation side of things. Yeah? show them red kites. Yeah. And there's also you are giving them good, clean food. So you're keeping you're enhancing first year survival, because a lot of the birds that attend these are or immature non breeders, you know, so it, it, it ensures that they're spending time with good, clean food. Um, yeah. And they're not going out into dangerous areas. Um, yeah. I know there, there could be a counter-argument, you know? That's, you know, I'm, I'm happy with them. I'm, I'm happy with it. And I'm happy with the continuation of them as well. Yeah. Um, as, as long as it's just small amounts and it's just done, you know, at a fixed time, I think two o'clock is the agreed time, yeah. you know?
0: Good, okay, yeah, I agree. I think the public engagement aspect of it has got oh, a huge weight. Yeah, it's 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 really, really important um, side of things. Uh, Andrew Goddard's asked a question. It's quite a big question, so a, in in a nice way. So I don't know how you'd even. I got told off for as, um, asking a similar question to a couple of people we've had on this. What is your best raptor memory, or and your worst? Um, as well, but I suppose you've you've kind of mentioned your worst one in many ways is the sparrowhawk on the shed. That, no, that no, 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 that wasn't worst. All right, go on, go on. We'll do, quickly give <laughs> Just, us the worst and your best then. If oh, you I want. don't know. I mean, if you if you'd
1: prime me on at the time, I was what fourteen or fifteen or something like that, and you know I was obsessed with dead birds. I used to be on my bicycle, used so to pick up dead birds off the road. And, have their wings all cut out and pinned up with a label on it and yeah. oh hey i've got a sparrowhawk wing you my mum used to pull a hair out of the dead things i had so that wasn't that wasn't the worst thing um gosh the best thing yeah yeah there's been a few i mean i suppose i could what was finding probably the most exciting was finding a black kite nesting in my red kite population that was and and and, and tracking down the nest that was really exciting that, and that just gave me such a buzz because i i just thought this is a i'm quite proud of the detective work i did you know i knew this he he came up for about three years and i d- didn't cotton on what he was up to you know until about the 30. and i thought This bird is picking up food, he came into this field that was being cut for hay and he picked up this chopped up bit of a chopped up pheasant or whatever it was and flew directly, he was heading somewhere and he went out of sight. So I went and positioned myself, you know, a couple of kilometers away and just sat down there and then sure enough, you know, after a couple of hours, he's, he's coming back the way. And I thought, well, I'm going to stay. And then sure enough, you know, another hour or so, he's back going the same route. And then I moved on for another couple of kilometers and eventually located the nest. And he was breeding with a with a red kite, a female red kite. Uh, and actually climbing up to that nest and seeing these three young, which to me just looked like red kites. Yeah. But it, he was a black kite. Um, definitely. He was just so distinctive. He had a very... Mm-hmm. I, thought I had to get somebody. I, I remember, I think I took Roy Dennis to it and... Eric Meek came down from Auckland to see it because Eric is another, was another of my old school pals from my Northumberland days, you know. So I needed, I needed these guys to say, "I'm not imagining it," but I was quite proud of that. It was a real buzz day, you know, really on a high. You- so um, bad days, oh God! I, I, yes, well, it would have to be the big red kite poisoning incident that we had on the Black Isle back in 2010. Oh. And, and I was nearing the end then. I, well, at the time, I thought that they're just going to run out of funding and we're nearing the end. And I thought, you know, I've just spent bloody 15 years of my bloody life working on this piece. And, and some Egypt has gone out there and carpeted this area with poison in the spring and killed all these breeding red kites, you know. And it was oh, just for a few days. It was so dark, and I knew exactly where to look. I could just go to the nest sites, you know, and there'd be dead birds on the nest. There'd be dead birds lying on the ground below it. I, uh, oh, I was, I was steaming. Um, it, it was, yeah, I was on a really low. I, I, I you know, we'd had poisoning incidents all through. Um, my years as a red kite officer, but it'd be just one or two a year. And of course, we were just looking at what was happening really in the core area. We had no idea what was happening out. But yeah, yeah, that, and and it went international as well. Um, And it it was a, well, even when I think back now, it's painful, you know, because it uh, really was a turmoil for me.
0: All right, well, ju- just to cheer you up quickly <laughs> then, do you still, a, a question from me that sort of relates to this, do you still get the same enjoyment and pl- pleasure, excitement, when you see a male, a, a hen harrier male? Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. My hair stands on my head. When I see my first cop, my first male come in, you know, in the yeah. spring, I'll go to a, I've got a study area up in Sutherland. It's an area that's never been keepered, never been burnt. And I can say this, this, so since our first located bears breeding there in back in the late 80s, I got, I've been there every year, and every year there's been at least one breeding pair. Continuous, you know, and so I that that's where I want my fix. I need my male hen harrier fix. I have to go and get it, and just my hair goes, oh, there it is, oh, yes, <laughs> oh, Jesus God. As they say it that that first male of the spring is better in sex, you know, is
0: there? <laughs> yeah, well I've said things similar, but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, maybe, just I, well, I just, I'm keeping it on the time, but there's loads there's there's lo- there's loads of things we still need to talk about. Let's quickly why well, I keep saying quickly, let's talk about Scott the Scottish Raptor study groups because they've been su- they have been such a big part of your life as well. Yep. I'm very proud to be a southerner that's been welcomed into the Highland Rap study group. Yep. As a, I'm a foreigner, um, and it, I, the few meetings that I've been to and the involvement I've, I've had with you and other people that I've met through it has been fantastic. It's nothing short of amazing, uh, except for the time I nearly died when I slept in my van near, the, the, near Leg, and it was February, and I only had my dog to keep me warm I, yeah that was a bad move anyway um but otherwise yeah t- just tell us a little bit about your involvement with the raptor study groups Their importance, if you can even put that into words
1: oh no uh, yeah very extremely important uh, scottish raptor study groups um and and very well organized now um so they're i think it's we've got 12 i think Regional rumpsy groups, virtually going from Shetland, Orkney, the Western Isles, Lewis and Harris, and then all the mainland divided up Highland, Um, and so they all got uh, uh, elected chairs, um, treasurers, secretaries, what have you, and and a varying number of members. So it can be as small as I think probably half a dozen out on out on uh, Lewis and Harris. Or, you know, in Highland, we've got something over 70. And um, yeah, so there, and that within the raptor study groups, you've got people who want to look at buzzards. You've got some who, who focus purely on owls, barn owls, tawny owls. You've got Merlin men. You've got We've got a lot of eagle men in Highland. Well, we've got the biggest eagle population, you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, and there's, yeah, we've got a few harrier men as well. And you've got general ones and people who just wanted to look at all of them, you know, as many as they can. Um, And you've got, I suppose, in every raptor group, there's a core, there's a, a portion who are just, can't do very much field work. But they're supporters and they're there you know in number supporting you
0: know um could you could you uh could you just i'm going to use this as a way of sort of possibly highlighting how important the raptor study groups has been and maybe a, a, a feather in the cap but also it's it's because you've been heavily involved in this i've got a book here brian can you <laughs> see what i'm holding up all right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Looks familiar. Now, obviously, a huge amount of work for anyone who hasn't got this book. They need it's the for me, this is the Bible really for Raptor monitoring. Um, I've got, yeah, this is the second edition. Obviously, you're on there as one of the co authors. There we go that the, the Scottish raptor study group played a huge part in the development and the creation of this book. And is that is it fair to say that this is a great example of why the raptor study group?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the lead author there, John, the late John Hardy, he was very important within the northeast Scotland raptor study group. known John right from the very beginning. Um, yeah, and all the other authors are members of raptor study groups, you know. Yeah. So, um, yep, hugely an important, example. and I think that was quite an important getting that out, because um, yeah. that's that, that was a, a, a big thing to bring us all together, um, yeah. and there were lots of drafts. So it went out to the various experts, and then I think there's been three printings, and each time we've incorporated new data. Um yeah. And I, hey, I, I wish the heck we had had something like that when I was starting off. When I started off really seriously looking at Sparrowhawks back in the mid 70s. The only one thing we had was, um, oh, the the British Birds of Prey by, uh, oh, uh, Leslie Brown. Brown. Leslie Brown, of course. I devoured that book. (laughs) It was just amazing. Just love it. I still love it. I still go
0: back to it, even though it's out of date. I just love it.
1: And that's all I
0: had. Well, the thing—the thing I love about uh, about talking to you, Brian, is though before when I was when you were talking at the start of this, you were doing some serious name dropping. I know some people view, uh, watching this might not know. Oh, right. but, you know and, Mick, Mick, Mar- I don't know some of these people personally, but Mick Marquis, I know the net. You know, Roy Dennis, Ian Newton. It's you know, so. And well, they we, all—they
1: all had a big impact on me. Well, of course, Mick. Yeah. You know, yeah, we knew each. We're in short trousers. We we did all cycling in those early days in Northumberland. You know, yeah. we we grew up together as teenagers. So, yeah. yeah so he's a right. personal personal friend, Mick, and Just so well. he had he was a major influence. And, and I think knowing Mick, um, on that period during the seventies when raptors were increasing, coming out of all that, that pesticide era. you know,
0: and yeah.
1: knowing you know, and there was a great deal of excitement, you know, and there was. You know, colleagues down in Northumberland, my, you know, like Eric Meek and Brian Little, look at, and we were exchanging ideas. We're on the phone, and I would go down to Northumberland for big weekends, and yeah. it was just so important, you know. And we, and of course, we were in our twenties then. It was exciting time. Your Raptors were yeah. bouncing back, you know. And well, it's, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we have people like you recording but, it. But That's but. But now we, we yes, every, this is what gets often thrown at us. What's the matter? How many raptors do you want? You know, this is what I've had thrown at me. You know, how many raptors do you want? Which obviously comes from the other side. And my, my response is, well, how many bloody red grouse do you need, you know? How many pheasants yeah. <laughs> do you need? How many red leg partridges do
0: you need? Well, that's true. Yeah, not fun. we did. Well, we did mention that last night with Ruth Tingy about one of, <laughs> some of the some of the propaganda that you know. There's the, one. I oh. think it was GWCt was saying there's two, over over quarter of a million raptors now. They're booming, and I was like, well, it's you. And Ruth said, and I agreed. You know, you can't package them all up into one figure. No, it no. doesn't work like that. Just because just because buzzards are successful in one area, merlins. Are in dire straits in a lot of areas. And
1: anyway.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and
1: you can go to large areas of, of Britain where you just don't see any birds of prey at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, a yeah. couple, couple more questions have come up. And um, Gareth's asked, Do you think, it's going back to a sort of shooting in the States, sorry, do you think walk walked up shoot and walked up estates are more accepting of raptors? Is the issue intensification of shooting? Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think they are walked up. Well, I mean, mainly because they're not, they don't, they don't tend to have um, anyone employed full time. Right. So they might have a a low ground keeper and they'll do a few days walk up, you know, they will just take the dogs out and just more or less to really go for the exercise and, and the pleasure of work, work, working the dog. And if they shoot a couple of brace, you know, that's, that uh, that's perfect. They're not really interested. And so they're never, they're not up on the hill during the spring and summer. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of estates that I look at with heads up, Harriot do walk up and they, they have Harriers and they get away with it. It's what I would class as unmanaged moorland. I mean, occasionally they do burn but it's not the sort of small regulated. They just sort of think, oh, the is getting a bit long. It'll just put a much to that hillside, or you know, something like that. But it's never serious stuff, and there's never any pit persecution. So I, I, I can tolerate walk up, and that's really very close to wildfowling. You know, the traditional wildfowling where a guy sort of, you know, goes goes to the local marsh or whatever, and and maybe is quite happy to get a couple of. Duck for the pot, you know, and maybe it's a goose. Mm. Sustainable, yeah. Um, so, okay. so I've I'm, I've no problem walked up, and I think that's the answer, you know.
0: Now while I've, while I've got you on as well, because I've mentioned the book uh, field guide to, for surveys and monitoring, and you've talked about um, you, you, a bit about the Scottish raptor groups. I'm well aware that that every year you run a couple of a couple of days for people like me to come and learn from people like you, you know, um, people with a lot more experience. So you do a woodland one and a moorland one. What what do you, what is your, what do you find is a, a really important attribute to have if you're into raptor monitoring or you want to get into raptor monitoring? Or do can it be anyone? Well, it can be anyone, of course. What do you think is an important attribute to have?
1: Oh, for a good one. Um, well, I think you need to have a passion for being out in the big outdoors. Um, um, the ability to really enjoy your own company, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ability to sit sit on your backside for a long period of time and just do nothing and just watch—that sort of appreciation, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, as I go out with other people occasionally you know so I I quite enjoy it but I I don't like two's fine yeah and I must admit there are some people who come on the courses uh, that they just want to come along for a chat and I just keep cringing looking back at them saying just shut up and just watch and you're not here to blether away and talk about whatever (laughs) you know save that for the car you know Um, and so yeah so that ability, and yeah, I really enjoy it. I, I quite. I think they're important yeah. because going right back to dear old Mick, he spent time with me in those early years, you know, and I learned from it very quickly, you know, and and I've learned from lots of other people over the years, you know, the individual hen guys down in um, in Southwest Scotland who started me off really seriously. Um, uh, yeah just brilliant, those early days. So I, people spend time with me and I'm, I think it's important that us all, I'm about to say old farts there, but you know what I mean? As, as older generations spend time with other people, passing on the knowledge that we have. Because when I go to Raptor conferences, I think every time we look there, we get whiter and grayer. And, and there's, you know, I w- want to see, younger people in there you know where are these young folk you know yeah yeah it seems like it's a whole generation of of us from the from the you know 60s all great and all together and we're not passing our information on, on to you know younger people
0: well, the book, the book's a, the book's a good start, and you, I, I, I can only, I can only um, testify, you, you, you know, yourself. You'd never heard of me before. It, luckily, obviously, I was a good, a mutual friend of ours, Steve Roberts, put us in touch. But you were brilliant with me, this, this lad who you'd never heard of before, and you met me. I remember meeting you in the cafe and us poring over ordnance survey maps. So, but it is, it, it's important because, you know, yeah, putting people on the right. Well, the fact is when you told me
1: that you're coming up in your van in, in February to go and monitor an eagle side that nobody's been the lookout for about ten years, I thought, well, you must be keen drive all that way to get near frozen to yeah. death. So my it was respect
0: it was for a, I respect that. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it's, it's well worth it. Anyway, the the, uh, the scenery that I get to look at isn't isn't too bad as well. Yeah, well,
1: it's about time you came back again, Jimmy. That don't think I, those sites have been looked at since you last up two years ago.
0: I know. Yeah, I will. I'll be. Yeah, well, yeah, I had my wings clipped a bit, but uh, that yeah. Was
1: well, just, I think uh, we've all had our wings clipped with this lockdown at the moment. Go on.
0: Yeah. Apart but, from uh, our no, lucky. Well,
1: the pup, our lucky, our friends in England, they're they're okay
0: apparently. I know. Uh, well, without without sort of talking amongst themselves, I know tomorrow's a big day for. I'm I'm in Wales as well, so yeah, find out what's going on tomorrow in Wales. But anyway, someone's someone's asked another question, a bit of a bit of a, a, a curveball one. Have you ever come across hen harriers crossbreeding with Montague harrier? No, no. I haven't. No. Um,
1: of course, I'm aware of the, um, the pallid harrier mm-hmm. yeah. case in, in Orkney. And I had um, experience with a pallid harrier down in Perthshire way back in the early 90s in the breeding season. It probably attempted to breed, but it, it attempted to breed on a grouse moor. And so almost certainly um, it was there for about a week, it was displaying. Um, but that, that, certainly the pairs of hen harrier that were there all, all got done in. So almost certainly he would have got done in. And the keeper wouldn't have known the difference between the two. Yeah. So that's the only, it, my experience. I've never, but, but I think you shouldn't, everything's possible. So the two species are, are very similar. Um, and, you know, um, on the continent where hen harriers are breeding in cereal fields, you know, and Montague's, of course, are as well. Yeah, um, it's it's possible if, if a black kite can come all the way to the highlands, you know, get lost and decide, you know, this is nice, go away for the winter and then come back the next year and do that three times, you know, and yeah. Uh So anything's possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. Anything is anything's possible. Um, but No,
1: I've, I've no no experience of that. Um, and I don't think we would see it in Scotland. So, uh, well, well, because Montagues are so so scarce now.
0: Yeah, well, of course, yeah, um, absolutely. And it, what's then just to finish up? Because I'm conscious of time. We've we've well smashed the one hour mark, Brian. Oh, wow. Thank you very much for your time. No, it's good. It's good. Um what what's the Thursday tomorrow? Fingers crossed. You're allowed to go out and, and stretch your legs. What's what's going to be first on Brian Etheridge's hit list of uh, things to look at? Obviously, not to, not too much detail. But what species or what well, I, I, well, I thought I would start in a small way,
1: and 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 go and look at all my local osprey iries to see if nice. the birds are back. Just warm to it, nice. so I thought I'd whiz round those.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, um, I'm starting in a, I'm starting in a small way because I'm going to go look round my little owl boxes. because <laughs> oh, right. they're all relatively. Oh, um, I, I I had I used to look at little owls in my
1: Northumberland days. Um, great yeah. favourite of mine.
0: I've got yeah. some. Yeah, I've got a nice um, little pocket of of little owl boxes. Yeah, I miss around. little
1: owls. I would really like to have them. Maybe she, when you bring next come to the Highlands, you could bring some with you
0: yeah to do, do, do another we'll start, really...
1: start another reintroduction little holstein Yeah,
0: little, little hours, yeah, okay brilliant right well i'm not going to i'm not going to keep you any any longer Brian, because uh, okay. you know i'm i'm really great i'm really grateful for your time i hope that hasn't been too painful for you too. no no I,
1: I, yeah. i've quite enjoyed it it's a
0: good old blether <laughs> it's good something... like i to... Come on! I was going to say it's a good my my nickname for you. So I have a nickname for people. So I've got. Um... Yeah, Steve Roberts, for instance, um, obviously famous for his honey buzzards and um, and yeah, being Welsh through and through. He's the Welsh wizard. He's known as the Welsh wizard. Steve is. Um, but we have a little we have a little chat group. Me, you know, Ashley Smith, Ashley Smith, and and uh, yeah, a few others. Steve Bentle, a few others. And I, I you're known as I call you God. By the way, so you're known as God to us, so so yeah, and definitely from what you've told us tonight, oh, all, the work, all the work you do, don't call me, bit, me. That, that's not age related. By the way, before you get you think, oh, <laughs> it's knowledge that's a bit crazy. That is. <laughs> Anyway, right, I'll say goodbye goodbye to everyone for. Yeah, thank you and, very much, Brian.
1: Yeah, and cheerio to everyone who's listening. I hope, I hope that I haven't spoiled your impression of me. Cheers, Brian.